we promised you that we would be spending a little time introducing you to a a stout little monk from Germany named Martin Luther. He didn't start out stout, but uh, he certainly ended life stout. Um, for reasons we won't talk about today, but their reasons. But before we start about Luther, before we bring Luther into the conversation today, I wanted to let you know that the Savior of the world is for sale. Do you recognize that? Did you know that? The Savior of the world is for sale. In fact, on November 15th, the Savior of the world is for sale. So if you're waiting, your opportunity is is on its way. The Savior of the world is for sale. Salvatore Mundi, Savior of the world, is for sale on November 15th. Now look at this picture. Um, What do you think he's worth? Got the little... uh, the little crystal ball in his left hand. This is this uh, symbol. I can't do it very well. Fat German hands. Um, this is a, a, a symbol of the benediction at the end of the church service. He would bless all the people, and that's that's what he's doing. He's that's the benediction that he's doing. He's holding that uh, crystal globe and doing a benedictory motion. So just get in your mind. What do you think? What do you think the Savior of the world, Salvador Mundi, is worth? In 1958, this very painting sold for 45 pounds, or the equivalent of about 60 bucks. 60 bucks. Sold in England. It was once owned, actually, this is a pretty famous painting. It was once owned by a king of France, owned later by a a king of England. But uh, when the king of England's family, uh, you know, later heirs in uh, 1958, this painting was, was really old, it's what is it, five centuries old now, almost. When the king of England's family t- sort of kind of cleaning off the walls, and they, they, they came to this one and said, this is a sorry-looking thing, and they, they put it up for auction and got rid of it. Sixty bucks. On a whim, a couple of years back, actually it's several years back now, a guy bought the painting. He was an art investor, and so he thought, you know, this... This might just be very valuable. It doesn't look like much. I recognize that. But it might actually be a very valuable thing. And so he decided to go ahead and buy it. He bought it for a few hundred dollars. But um, it's going up for auction on November 15th because it's been discovered to be the last remaining Leonardo da Vinci painting floating around out there. And this starting asking price at Christie's auction hall is $100 million. Don't you wish you had made a, 58 or a $60 investment in 1958 that was worth $100 million today? $100 million. Do you feel bad if you sold something for 60 bucks in 1958 that's going to start at auction for $100 million today? 
November 15th, it's up for auction. Now, if you want to go see it, you can actually go see it. It's touring. I think it's touring so that it might build up an, an auction house value. It's going to be in San Francisco this month. In fact, next week, it's, on, it's going to be on display in San Francisco. So, uh, you know, if you're, if you're interested, you go take a look and see, you know, what you want to, how many zeros you want to write on your checkbook. By the way, if you have that, a checkbook that will write that zeros, I need to talk to you about the building fund. See me after. So th- th- this is an interesting thing to me. The value of the Savior of the world has now been established. $100 million. And you can buy it. November 15th. Now I want to I start with Martin Luther here because this is desperately what he was looking for. Martin Luther was desperate to find the Savior. As a young man, even, he was very, very serious about his relationship with God. But do you remember the conversion story of Martin Luther? Martin Luther was planning to be a lawyer. He was actually in law school. He was doing quite well. He was liked by his friends. Everyone assumed he would have a great career as a lawyer. And as he was going forward with that process, as he was moving through law school and learning all the things that he had to learn, his father being very excited about this. His father was a, was a peasant who had found some success mining copper and so had raised himself to what we would consider sort of middle to upper middle class um, in, his, in his region. Understand that, that uh, the average wage for a peasant for the year, the average, uh, average take home salary, so this is the, the cash that they earn. This isn't counting the, the, the zucchinis they raise. This is just the cash they earn. The average wage for a German peasant that in that time was six marks a year. So the cash that an average peasant would take home in a year was six marks. And so his family was not of the six mark class. They were up a little bit. They were earning more money. They, they were able to, to send Martin off to a good school. The school's in the region, but a good school where he could become a lawyer. And his dad said, hey, you know what we need in this family? We need some lawyers. All businessmen, everybody who runs a business, eventually wants a kid who is a lawyer because they know they need a lawyer on retainer. And who better than your kid? Keep the money in the family, right? And you can hopefully trust that one. So he's looking to have a lawyer in the family and Martin Luther is walking along one day and he finds himself in a thunderstorm. We talked about this a little bit last week. Finds himself in a thunderstorm. It's extreme. I mean, lightning is flashing around him. The storm is literally right over his head. Rain is pouring down. Lightning is flashing. And as the lightning starts flashing nearby in the field where he is, recognizing he's the tallest thing in the field... He cries out to Saint Anne. Now understand, he's a, he's a very specific, he's a, he's a very committed Catholic gentleman. And so he cries out to Saint Anne, the, the patron saint of minors. And he says, Saint Anne, if you'll save me, I'll become a monk. And she did. Or at least he didn't get hit by lightning. He took that commitment very seriously. In fact, he then immediately joined an Augustinian order of monks. He became an Augustinian monk because he's very honest at heart. He's very serious about what he's doing in his faith. And he said, look, I made a pledge. And I'm going to keep my pledge. He had to write his father from the, from the, the uh, uh, monastery. Thank you. 
He had to write, all I could think was novitiate, and I knew that wasn't it. He had to write his dad from the monastery and tell him what was going on. Dad was unhappy, and for two years they didn't talk. He stayed in the monastery, and he found that he was an absolutely miserable monk. He was a miserable monk. Not that he was a bad monk. He was just a miserable monk. You see, the the monks had lots of practices that they were to do, and, and all those practices were designed to help them be holy. So there were things they had to practice every day to, in order to be holy. There were, there were, there were prayer times that they had to, to, had to follow through with every day. There were times of fasting that they had to do. There were jobs they had to do. All of those things. And, and Martin Luther practiced and practiced and practiced those things. He just kept trying to do them to his very best. And he was, such again, such an honest-hearted guy, he recognized that he could be sitting there on the day when he was supposed to be fasting and thinking about God and just thinking about food. And it broke his heart. It hurt him deeply that he could be such a mess inside. He could find himself in the middle of prayer and be distracted by something and not even be thinking about prayer. And it just killed him. It was so hard for him because he didn't want to just be a monk on the inside. He didn't want to just want to be faithful on the inside or on the outside. He wanted to be faithful all the way through. He wanted his absolute core to be given over to Jesus. And so he constantly searched his mind. The one thing he was excellent at was confessing. When Martin Luther was go to, would go to confession, sometimes his confessions would last three hours. It got to the point that the people who heard his confessions started basically telling him to stop. You do not have to confess everything, Martin. You know, these are supposed to be private. You're not supposed to know who's on the other side, but I guess after an hour passes, you know who it is. But Martin Luther was tormented by the things he thought he had to do to make God love him. He was told that God was severe and at the least provocation angry and wrathful. And so he was trying to avoid all of that. He was looking for salvation. And he couldn't figure it out because all of the practices had one major flaw, and the flaw was his heart. The flaw was the internal torment of a man who caught himself between two opinions. I want to serve God, but I just find myself struggling to do it fully. Sound familiar? It is the state of mankind, isn't it? Our brokenness is not out here at the fingertips. Our brokenness is in here at the center, the core of our heart. The sin problem, the sin problem begins inside. And Martin Luther was discovering this and discovering this and discovering it. For several years in the, in the monastery, he wore himself out trying to be the best possible monk he could be. In the midst of his studies... He found himself in the library of the monastery, and he found in the library a Bible. Now, you have to understand, they were very rare. It was very unusual to have one. You could go your entire life and never see one. You could go your entire life as a monk and never read one. The only ones who understood them were those who could read Latin, and they were the priests. And the priests would only read passages from the text that were supposed to be read read for the liturgy that day. 
And so there were very specific things that people were not regularly handling a Bible. You have one on your phone, you have one on your iPad, you have one in your car, you have one in your house, you have one in your office, you have five or six maybe stored away someplace in a shelf. This was a very unusual, this would have been unheard of at the time. The Bible was hard to come by. He finds a Bible and he starts to read. He comes to these conclusions as he begins to read the Bible. These, my friends, are the foundations of your faith. These are the foundations, Latin and English, for the faith that Protestants hold. Seventh-day Adventists are certainly family members of the Protestant church. We are sons of the Reformation. Here are the things. Sola Scriptura. Why is that Latin phrase first? Because Martin Luther was saying, look, if it's not in the Bible, it doesn't matter. So we have to go to the Bible. Sola Scriptura. The Bible alone is where we find our faith and practice. Number two, sola fide. By faith. In faith alone. By faith alone is how we reach out to God. It is our faith that connects us with God. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Are these starting to sound familiar to you at all? Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone. In Christ alone. And last one, the one that gets forgotten all the time, to the glory of God alone. Why would this be really important to to Martin Luther? Because he'd been trying and trying and trying to do it under the authority of Martin and realized he could only do it under the authority of God, and he could only do it when it was directed to God, that it was to the glory of God. Do you you understand what we just did, standing and worshiping and praising God and praying, that those are really the only thing the church takes with us forward into heaven? We don't have preachers in heaven. We have one preacher in heaven. Right? In heaven, you get to listen to Jesus preach, and you get to sing with the angels. And you get to speak with God, which is prayer, right? That's the the whole act of prayer is a conversation with God. So what we carry with us is actually this kind of stuff minus the, the bad preaching. You go straight to the source and get the best preaching available. This is what we do. This is what we do when we're in heaven. These are the these are the spiritual activities of heaven. So you want a little taste of what heaven is like? It's church. It's church. As he started to unveil in his own reading these things, he began to realize it was going to change the way he looked at at, at his spiritual life. The first one by itself tears at the very root of the church he was a part of. Catholicism said, no, 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 the, the papal authority is the real important authority. And he said, no, what I'm discovering in Scripture is that Scripture is the only real authority. And thus starts the torment in his life over the church's problem, but starts the the absolute glory in his life because he's beginning to recognize faith and grace. So, here's what he's reading. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, last part. The just shall live by faith. I told you that moment when he was crawling up the steps on his knees. There in Rome, I've actually, we've actually been to those. Those of you who went with us on the, 
the, the Reformation tour. Remember going to this particular set of steps. And he was crawling up the steps on his knees. Still goes on. People still do it. The steps are worn so badly that they had to resurface the steps. They have now wooden steps over the top of the old marble steps because the marble steps were actually worn so badly from people going up and down on their knees. And at each step, you would, you would say certain prayers. And as he was crawling up the steps nearing the top, this text came to his mind by faith alone. The just shall live by faith alone. And that moment clicked in his mind and the pieces that he'd been discovering started to come together into one. And in that moment, he got up, walked away, went home and was never the same guy. The just shall live by faith alone. Ephesians chapter 2, two verses 8 and 9. You are saved by grace through faith. You see the picture coming together for him? You are saved by grace through faith. That not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Get the picture? He's beginning to see the picture coming together scripturally. He's beginning to understand the value of the text in transforming his mind, his life, and his heart and the way he thinks about the world. He's no longer in charge of bludgeoning himself, which he had started doing. He had started punishing himself physically to try to get his heart under control. He's no longer in charge of bludgeoning himself to try to make himself come in line with his faith. Instead, he has placed the responsibility in God's hand to transform whom he is. He's resting in faith on God, accepting the grace and covering of God and realizing it's a revolutionary idea. So many believers find themselves in that that stuck little dark dungeon that he found trying to find a way to manipulate the feelings of God about them so that he might save them. Martin Luther came to understand that God actually loved him, wanted him saved, would like him in heaven, and was going to great ends to try to make that happen. So cool for him. So amazing, the change. Some of you have felt it. Some of you have done it. Some of you have lived the life where you were trying to earn salvation. You've walked the walk. You've tried really hard to do all the things right so that God might save you. And one day you realize that it was by His grace, by His strength, in His authority, through the power of His Holy Spirit. And you realize it wasn't ever going to be done by you. And you leaned in to Him. And He yoked you together and began walking with you. And you realized, wow, His yoke is easy. His burden is light. When I walk with Jesus, this isn't as hard as I thought. Hmm. And the last one, one that we, it's one that we often use in a very small context, he realized was an explosive idea. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 31. Verse 31. What do you eat or drink? And most of the time in our circles, in Adventist circles, we, we sort of stop right there, whether you eat or drink. Do all the glory of God. Okay, fine. But look at the next phrase. Whatever you do. Eat or drink or work or rest or at home or at the grocery store or with your family or with your friends. Whether you are here or there or whatever you find yourself doing, do all to the glory of God. So when you come to church and you begin to sing and they're singing a song you don't like or you don't know, Do your best to the glory of God. When you are called on by the Holy Spirit to step out and speak to your neighbor and you're terrified, you don't want to say anything to your neighbor, what if they don't like you anymore? What if they start putting acid on your lawn? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And when you start to freak out about it, do all to the glory of God. 
what you find yourself doing, do it to the glory of God. How cool, how amazing, how powerful these simple three texts are. You will live the just, the, the people who are, who are justified in Christ. Go ahead and read that passage in its context. Those who are justified in Christ live by faith. Those who are, are, are being transformed are covered by His grace. And all of that is not for your authority, your power, your glory, your aggrandizement too, but to the glory of God. That all believers are doing this. And they're not saying, I'm number one. They're saying, look at Him, look at Him. Look at him. Quit looking at me. I'm not anything to be looked at. Look at him. And that the whole job of the church is to keep pointing, keep pointing, keep pointing to Jesus. By faith, through grace, to his glory. By faith, covered by his grace, to God's glory. As he began to find faith in Christ and accept grace, he could be honest with and about himself without tearing his heart out because of his shortcomings. He recognized the covering of Jesus in those shortcomings and the hand of God in the process that would transform his life. The primary issue in Christian faith and the primary issue in the Protestant Reformation is not how much we do the primary issue is by in whom do we place the authority? Do we place the authority in man? Do we place the authority in church? Do we place the authority in ourselves? Or do we place the authority of, in God through Christ through the scriptures? The primary, the primary question in your life and mine is a question of authority. Christian faith and doctrine must come from the scriptures alone, right? Now, if you've been in the, in the, in the way, in the Protestant walk for a while in your life, you, this probably ought to be review for you. If it's not, I'm glad to open this new page to you. But I want you to understand how revolutionary it was at the moment. Because all the world, for the last... 1,200 years had placed the authority to speak for God in the hands of the priesthood and ultimately in the hands of the Holy See, the Pope. That there, was this, there were these people in charge of understanding and telling you about God. In Protestantism, we have preachers, but we believe in the priesthood of the believer. We have people who teach and specialize, but we believe in the priesthood of the believer. That means you are your own priest. No one needs to stand between you and God. You have direct access to God. That's what this priesthood thing is. It's about, there's no, there's no link of chains that you have to work your way through. You have direct access to God. You have the ability to speak and pray and study and listen and hear the Holy Spirit and be led for yourself, in yourself, by the power of God himself, you have that, that author, that, or that, um, that space that the preach held up, priest held up in yourself. The priesthood of all believers. That doesn't mean we go around hearing each other's sins. It means we have a direct connection to God, ourselves. The priesthood of the believer. So Pope Leo X begins to threaten him for his uh, 
positions because the, the church quickly sees the threat of this, this backwater monk from Germany. Just like the Roman government and the, the leadership of Israel saw the threat of this backwater rabbi from Galilee. They, could, they saw the threat to their authority that the, making the scripture the center of everything was. And in that threat to their authority, they started sending people to talk to him. One of them was a man named Johann Eck. They met in Leipzig, Germany in 1519, and they began this long conversation about Luther's teachings. And, and Eck said, look, you can't teach this stuff. You've you got to stop teaching this stuff. Luther said, I can't. I can't stop teaching this because these things are foundational in Scripture. These are things I have discovered in Scripture. I can't stop teaching it. Along the way, as Luther is uncovering the grace of God, a guy shows up in his town named Tetzel. Tetzel has been sent by the church for a, a church fundraising event. We talked about this a little bit last week as well. And Tetzel begins to raise money for the church by charging three marks. Do you remember what I told you that was the average wage of a peasant for the year? Six marks. Three marks for an indulgence. What the indulgence basically is, to explain it a little more than I did last week, the indulgence is this. The church said, we have sort of a bank account of the good behaviors of the world. And the saints, all those who have gone before you who are awesome, who we've sainted, all those saints have extra in their account, more than they need to be saved. Now think about this. This is a straight transactional understanding of how you're saved, right? You get enough good works built up and you're in. You don't, you're out. And if you're, if you're a little bit shy, you go into a holding tank called purgatory. If you're a totally empty bank account, you go straight to hell. That's the point. And so in that description of things, in that way of looking at things, you're trying to always get enough in your bank account to outweigh your bad deeds. It's actually Egyptian theology, not biblical theology. It smacks of that feather on the scale and your heart on the other side and trying to weigh out whether you're good enough to be saved. Well, that was the theology of the Middle Ages, and that's what was taught in the church. And so everybody was trying to figure it out. And so here comes a guy who says, hey, guess what I have? I have access to the good works of the saints, and for a couple of bucks, actually, uh, let's say about 40,000 bucks or 30,000 bucks, something similar to that, half your year's wages, I can get you into heaven. Ba-boom! As soon as those coins hit the bottom of the pan, you are guaranteed heaven, my man. And he would, use, he would actually use rhyme like that. Good salesman, actually. Going to remember that line, right? Luther was about to come unglued. He could not believe that Jesus was for sale. He could not believe that these people had the temerity to teach that you could somehow buy your way into heaven. He'd been reading and studying and teaching now for years that you can't do this. You can't buy heaven. You've got to just go to Jesus. He's already covered everything that needs to be covered. Surrender to Him. Let Him become the leader of your life and He will take it from there. He who began a good work in you will see it through to the end. He will make sure if you link yourself together with him as you walk and follow him that you're okay, that you're secure, that you're saved. And Luther just about loses it. On October 31, I told you last week, he goes to the door of the church and he nails, I'll show you a picture of this door maybe next week. He nails the 95 theses. The 95 theses are just, you might think of them as, uh, as 
individual commentaries on what's being done. Did you read them last week? Some of you read them. Some, at least one of you read them. Okay. He gets, he hits real personally with the leadership of the church. So they send what's known as a papal bull to him saying, stop or we're going to kick you out of the church. The, 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 uh, the Pope then starts burning Luther's books. Luther gets a little upset by that. And so he burns the bull, the papal bull, in the middle of the street. So things get a little escalated here. And he continues to be called before leaders. And he finally gets called before what's called the Diet of Worms. This is not a new weight loss thing. Okay? This is being called before the church leadership at a place called Worms. Okay? And so he's being called there to, to meet his, his uh, accusers. And he does. He stands before the most powerful men and the most powerful cardinals and priests in the land. And he speaks to them. And they, they ask him, will you recant the things you've written? And he says, well, I've written a lot of stuff. Could you give me a day to think about that? And so he does. He goes home and he comes back the next day. When he comes back the next day, he says, there are three classes of the things I've written. First, I've written about the abuses of the priesthood and the leaders in the church. And to, do, to recant those things would, to be say, would be to say those things are okay and that these people's behaviors are all right. And I'm not doing that. Second thing I've written <clears throat> are the things where the church has come in conflict with the Bible. And, uh, and, I, and I, can't, I can't really recant of that because the Bible is clearly our authority. And so, no, I can't recant of those. And then he said, the third classification are things I've written where I've specifically attacked individuals. And he said, I'm really sorry because I was pretty mean in the way I've attacked some individuals. And that was the end. He didn't say he would recant those. He just said, I shouldn't have done it. And then he begins this phrase. Speaking to the leaders, he says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust either the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I think this is going over so far. Not so well, since you believe in infallibility. I am bound by the Scriptures. I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Sola Scriptura. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither, neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. He knew he was signing his own death sentence. He knew that to say this one paragraph was to, to place himself outside of the favor of the church, to have himself excommunicated and put a bounty on his head and a blessing on any who would kill him. And yet he did it. And here you sit because there he stood. We exist now, I don't know, maybe somebody would have come along. John Huss had been there a hundred years before, and Calvin and Zwingli and others are, 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 in, the, are in the nest beginning to, to grow and beginning to, to, to stretch their wings to fly themselves, and maybe one of them would have been the one. 
But things came together in the moment for this man in a way that they hadn't before. And he chose to start a revolution for you. Understand that's really true. Because if this was just about him, he could have kept it to himself. There was no reason for him to go public with this unless he was concerned about you. Unless he was concerned about the next generation. He starts publishing his works in German. He speaks in German. He, o- he only uses a certain low German so that everyone can see it. He has a friend of his who's an artist draw pictures, and some of them are, are uh, political cartoons, frankly, and they're publishing those because a lot of people couldn't read. And the things he's written in the 95 Thesis spread like wildfire. The pamphlets he writes spread so fast that they can't keep them. All over Germany, all over Europe, they're translated into other languages. And the message that the scripture is your only source of hope. That Jesus is your only covering. That you are a priest in yourself in in that you have no one who stands between you and God. That you're covered by his grace, by the choices of your faith, to his glory. Spread all over the, the world. Luther gets some protection, and I'll tell you more about that next week. But we started somewhere, and I want to finish. What made this man so angry, what made him so upset, was this question of authority and the sale of salvation. All personal transformation begins with the question of authority. All personal reformation begins with a question of authority. So I ask you, just you, sitting in your seat, not your kid, not your neighbor, not, no one else, what has the highest authority in your life? Science? It's a tricky one. The things you can measure. I believe in what I can touch and what I can measure. Who's really the authority then? You? Your opinion? Your favorite politician? Your favorite radio host? Your favorite TV show? Who's your authority? Now most of us are saying not that, not that, not that. But we need to ask another question. If somebody else were to examine who would they say was your authority? Is it your own wits? Is it the culture? Is it your friends? Your friends at work? Your friends at school? Who is your authority? Salvation's on sale November 15th. The Savior of the world. On November 15th, someone will buy the Savior of the world. Think about that. Isn't that crazy? What, a, what an odd phrase. On November 16th, some newspaper somewhere will say, some rich guy you've never heard of, bought the Savior of the world, Salvatore Rome. Savior of the world. 
the end of the day, that's what's making the little German monk mad. People are buying and selling Jesus. You see, the Jesus that he knew when he started this discussion was covered by layers and layers and layers and layers of culture. Over a thousand years of church rules and regulations and beliefs and culture covered by layers and layers and layers of culture. Hidden, really, from him or anyone else by all of that. So I ask you again, what about your Jesus? Is he covered by layers of culture? I I was in my research this week reading about this particular painting and I happened onto a website I'll probably never go back to. It's 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 purportedly a news website and as I I read the, the article and then I read some comments on the article and I think the first comment on the article was there's no such thing. Jesus is a lie. Jesus never happened. Jesus isn't true. Now I have to tell you that's cultural addition of the last hundred years. Before the last hundred years no one questioned the historicity of Jesus. No one questioned it. And today we're having to demonstrate that Jesus was a real historical figure. In fact, I I watched as the comments went on. I was waiting for somebody to stand up and say, don't be so ignorant, of course he is. And finally someone did. And the guy just responded dismissively. Is a Jesus you hold covered by some cultural nuance? Is it covered by your Adventism? Is Jesus hidden behind layers of things that you've placed there in front of him? The reason I'm asking this question is because this painting that you're looking at isn't the one that's really for sale. This is the, this is the Jesus people tried to fix. For centuries, people tried to fix Jesus. They added a little bit here. They added a little bit there. They wanted to make his eyes more prominent. They wanted to make his masculinity more prominent, so they put a little mustache on him. They wanted to make him look more like they thought he should look, and so they painted on top of what Leonardo had painted. They kept painting on top until Leonardo's original image was gone. That's why it sold for 60 bucks. Because no one could tell that that Jesus was under there. It had been so covered up by years, half a millennium, of people trying to fix it, that they'd lost complete complete understanding of who was there. And so when someone came along and saw this painting and said, you know, there's one painting of Leonardo's missing, and I don't know, this might be it. The first task he had was to begin to try to uncover the painting to see what was there. He could see that there'd been a lot of repairs to the painting. And as he began to dig out the painting from what was covering it, as he began to remove hundreds of years of fixes, it began to become clear that the painting underneath was actually Leonardo da Vinci. Because this is what he found. 
And you can see why they fixed it, right? This Jesus looks a little effeminate, right? It's the outfit, I think, mostly. But it is the traditional clothing of the day. His face is not very prominent in the painting. He's a little bit in the background. It's, it's his benedictory hand that is the emphasis of the painting. No one sees it. But Jesus is in the background, and the pronouncement of his blessing is what's really in the foreground. It's the fingers. It's that, it's that blessing that the painter wants you to see, that Jesus is blessing you. When they finally got down to this level and discovered, yeah, Jesus is under all of that. The value soared. That's what the little German monk found. When he uncovered Jesus finally, the real Jesus changed everything for him. Today, if you've kind of lost track of the real Jesus, he's waiting for you to find him. He's waiting for the moment when you will finally see him under the coverings you put out there. Under the stuff you believe from National Geographic, under the things you heard somebody teach one day, under your own doubts and fears, when you finally let him become who he is, the Savior of the world, the leader of your life, the Christ, to the glory of God, it will change everything. Father, we need to 